What do you look forward to? If you've been with us on Wednesday evenings as we've been going through uh, the two letters of Timothy, just in the last couple of weeks as we've drawn to the close in those studies, uh, you'll have been with us when we looked at 2 Timothy 4 verses 7 to 8, where Timothy could say, I have fought the good fight. Who did I say? Timothy. Thank you. Paul, writing to Timothy. I have, that's why you have elders, you see. Iron sharpens iron. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And back in 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, from a man, Paul, not Timothy, from a man whose body bore deep and painful scars for the cause of Christ, our light affliction is but for a moment, working in us, for us, a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Again and again, you see, he turns the faces of his readers to where he is looking. He does it time and time again. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, he would say, we are of all men most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then, and he moves our faces again, comes the end. He's constantly calling us to look and see. What do you look forward to? Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. I tell you a mystery. We, sh- we shall not all sleep. We will all die. But we'll all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised incorruptible and we'll all be changed. He's constantly reminding us what he is looking forward to. When he thinks of the glorious eternity that's promised to all believers, Paul is overjoyed on their behalf. To think of them saved from condemnation and forever in the presence of God simply delights his soul. Oh, that we would think more like that about each other and for each other. He rejoices 
we give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. We're giving thanks and rejoicing for what you have in Christ. Oh, that there was more of that in me for you and more of that in you for one another. What are you looking forward to? What is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing, asks Paul. Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? What are you looking forward to? In each of the three chapters to his letter, in his letter to Titus, of course the chapter divisions weren't there originally, but nevertheless three times in Titus Paul mentions that which is yet to be. He knows that all that we have in this world will pale into nothing by comparison in hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised before time began, he writes to Titus. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. He wants to turn Titus's face as well. Look, are you looking? That having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He's constantly talking about this theme. Summed up in that great slogan, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But what on earth has all that got to do with Ezekiel? Especially these final chapters where he's talking about the temple. That's got everything to do with it. There must have been times in Paul's life and ministry when a casual outsider would have concluded, looking on, that's it. He's done for now. Paul's finished. But again and again, it simply wasn't true. And if they'd had the ability to see beyond the physical and the temporary, they, they would have seen what Paul could see. The glorious and eternal kingdom of God stretching out through all of eternity. The kingdom in which Paul was going to be a citizen forever. And in which he has a guaranteed inheritance beyond earthly valuation or comparison. And so even if this was the end of his earthly pilgrimage... There is only far greater still to come. There is a certain future hope. Now if we go back to Ezekiel's day. After 25 years in captivity. You could have been forgiven for coming to much the same conclusion about Israel. Couldn't you? The nation is as good as finished. Jerusalem lies in ruins. All the people that can really be accounted for, the majority of them are all in captivity in Babylon. They've been there for a quarter of a century. What hope, Israel? What future, Israel? God, you may as well go and find someone else to use. There's nothing left here. But Israel isn't finished. And a certain future hope is there.
And that hope is portrayed to Ezekiel by means of this vision. The future hope which is coming. Now before we look at these chapters, there's a few uh, helpful points probably that need to be made. The first is, unlike the instructions that were given to Moses in the book of Exodus for the construction of the tabernacle, that tent temple that they took with them through the wilderness... This temple that Ezekiel is seeing is not to be built. It's not the same. There's no instruction here that this temple is to be built. There's nothing to suggest that God expects this temple will be constructed by the people. It is simply a vision of a completed temple. You read the Exodus account, the things that God says to Moses... There are detailed instructions and it's absolutely clear that God intends the tabernacle to actually be built and used for worship. But that's not what's happening here. It's just a vision. It's an observation of a temple in a vision. And it isn't necessarily the literal Jerusalem that Ezekiel is looking at as God takes him in Verse 2 of chapter 40, he's taken onto a very high mountain in the vision. There is no very high mountain at Jerusalem. They're large hills more than anything else. And he's shown something like a city. Something like a city. It's just a vision, nothing more. Everything here is symbolic. It's a bit like Ezekiel's being given a virtual reality 3D tour of a temple. And it's the most wonderful, beautiful, perfect example of a temple that you could hope to see. For any Jew familiar with the tabernacle and familiar with the temple and what it was for, this was just the most glorious temple that is being described, that Ezekiel is seeing Now, of course, eventually, a remnant would return to Jerusalem and both the city and the temple would be rebuilt. And, of course, that's where the books of Ezra and Nehemiah come in. But this vision actually has nothing to do with that. This isn't a blueprint for the new temple in Jerusalem. The new temple that was rebuilt in Jerusalem didn't look like this one. It wasn't the same dimensions as this one. And so in this vision, Ezekiel is given a guided tour around this symbolic temple. And all of the imagery that's here is intended to depict certain wonderful spiritual realities and truths. Now, one thing that you need to be very careful of is what you mustn't do is read through these chapters and try to apportion some specific spiritual meaning to every facet of detail. The detail is being used to draw the picture. And once you have the whole picture in your mind, as Ezekiel saw it, the big picture is making certain big key statements. So it's the big picture you need to see in language like this in the Bible. And see the big main message that it's intended to convey. Well, we didn't read chapters 40 to 42, 
So let's imagine we can use one of these newfangled drone things with a camera on and take a brief overview flight through chapters 40 to 42 and have a look at what it was that Ezekiel saw and just pick out some of the points of interest as we go along. Well, in chapter 40 from verses, verse 1 through to verse 27, we have this little introduction, 25 years into the captivity. Surely, God has long abandoned us. 25 years? Sometimes, the time scales that God works to baffle us completely. They've actually still got another 45 years in captivity. But Ezekiel meets a man who's to be his host and his guide. He has a rod in his hand. The rod is about 10 feet or 3 metres in length. And that helps to provide the dimensions of this thing that Ezekiel saw. And the basic layout was familiar to Ezekiel. It has some similarities to the pattern laid down for the tabernacle. Uh, the dimensions are not the same. The temple that Ezekiel saw is very much larger than the tabernacle was. And what we have depicted, if you were to try and read every verse and then put pen to paper and draw it, might end up looking something like that. And... Verses 5 to 27 of chapter 40 describe an outer courtyard. And so it has this outer wall. The wall is 10 feet high and 10 feet thick. And at the end of chapter 42, it tells us it was 500 cubits square. And a cubit is a cubit plus a hand. Depends how long your arm and your hand is. About 800 feet square. That means this temple covered about 14 acres. It's about the size of six or seven football pitches, if that helps. It's big. Very big. Three of the walls have gates. One gate in each of the three walls. There are stairs which lead up into the, inner court, the outer court. As you go up the steps, either side of the gate, there are five chambers. So there are ten chambers on this wall, and ten chambers on that wall, and ten chambers on that wall. And the temple and the inner court at the centre. Look at the end of chapter 42. The outer wall acts as a barrier to separate that which is holy from that which is common. There's a clear division here. Inside the temple is only holiness. And all the unholiness lies outside. So there's an outer court being described. And then from verses 28 to 49, there's the inner court further inside. And that's where the priests traditionally would serve in a real temple. The kind of priest that Ezekiel was as a young man. Like the outer court, the inner court also has three gates. 
and you, there will be steps leading up to the inner court. And we discover there's a chamber for washing and preparing sacrifices. There are tables for placing and slaughtering the offerings, verses 39 to 41. For the placement of burnt offerings, there are tables of stone, verse 42. There were additional chambers for singers and for the priests. And there are chambers for the priests, which are described in chapter 42. And then there's a vestibule which leads from the inner court into the actual temple itself, which is right at the heart of the whole thing. So the layout is very similar to the tabernacle that you might be familiar with. The outer curtain, the general court where all the people could go, then the inner court where only the priests could go. Then you have the holy place, and the holy place was divided into two. In the outside section of the holy place, there was the altar of incense, there was the golden lampstand, and then behind the curtain was the most holy place, the holy of holies. Well, that same basic layout is depicted in this vision of this temple that Ezekiel is seeing. And so there's some obvious similarities between the two. And then chapter 41 begins to describe the actual temple, that building right at the heart of the whole thing. Just like the tabernacle, which had a tent divided into two, uh, this building is in two parts, an outer room and an inner room. There are cherubim and palm trees carved into wood, and it's all panelled in wood. Unlike the tabernacle, there are certain furnishings that are not mentioned. There's no altar of incense. There's no golden lampstand, for example. So this temple isn't an exact replica of the tabernacle. It's not intended to be. It's just a vision. But there is a large stone altar. It's about 12 feet high. There are three stones, one on top of the other. The largest at the bottom, then one slightly smaller, and another one slightly smaller again. So it's almost like a pyramid effect to create a stone altar 12 feet high. This is what Ezekiel is seeing as he's given this tour around. As I said, you you don't need to get yourself bogged down in all the detail. Stand back and see the grandeur of what Ezekiel was seeing. Would have taken his breath away perhaps. What a temple. This is the temple to beat all temples. This is the perfect temple. It's symmetry. And it's just wonderful. It's a large space sanctified for the worship of God. And for nothing else. Order, symmetry, beauty, precision, purpose, finery. And above all, a place of unbridled holiness. And then in chapter 43, in the passage that we read, into this temple the glory of God returns. Now we've read earlier that the glory of God has departed from Israel, but it's coming back again. This has echoes of what we were considering this morning, you see. Those who truly are the Lord's people, he hasn't abandoned them. He hasn't cast them off. 
And for those who will return to him in repentance, there is hope. And Ezekiel sees the Lord and he says that he sees a vision of God just like the one back in chapter 1. That vivid image, you can go back and read it again if you've forgotten. Vivid imagery, amazing language that's being used. How do you find the words to describe the holiness of God, the majesty of God, the authority of God, the strength and beauty and wisdom of God? Where do you find the words that would possibly do God justice? Well, the vision that Ezekiel has is God's way of displaying to Ezekiel all of those things about the living God. And he sees it all again as God enters this temple. And we discover the whole point of the vision. And it's in verse 7 of chapter 43. This is the place of my throne, the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name. All sin is gone here. Wow. What a wonderful place. In the Old Testament, it speaks of God's enemies being made his footstool. The throne and the place of the soles of his feet speaks of God's supreme kingship and authority over all things and his victory over all who would oppose him. And it's a place where there is no more sin. All sin has been banished and done away with in this place. And then if you carry on reading beyond where we read from uh, verse 13 in chapter 43, what you'll discover there is a, a picture of offerings making atonement for sin. Well, I began talking about the Apostle Paul. What kept him going? Well, for sure, it was daily strength and grace. For sure, it was the sovereignty of God preserving him and keeping him like we saw this morning. But it was also Paul's complete assurance of what lay ahead and what lies beyond this life. That's what kept him going. And what about Ezekiel and all the other exiles? 25 years in Babylon and 45 still to go. Some would die there. Some would be born there. What, a word of what word of encouragement can God give through the mouth of his prophet? And what word of encouragement can he give to you, for you, in all of your struggles, in all of your disappointments, in all of your worries and anxieties? What word can God give his people to keep them and assure them and comfort them and strengthen them? What about us as a church in all our endeavours in the gospel? Sometimes with seemingly little fruit to show. What can we look to? How do we keep going? Well, we find ourselves with Paul. We find ourselves with Ezekiel. Looking forward to that which is sure. Sure.
looking forward to that which is promised. And Paul and Ezekiel and others like them through the scriptures would say, hey, look. Do you keep looking? Do you look as often as you should? And remember and be encouraged. In this vision, God is seen in the eternal presence of his people, in a protected sanctuary of holiness. He uses language and images that Ezekiel and Israel would have understood. But that's the message. This is a place where all sin has been done away with. Verse 9 of chapter 43. And the people will enjoy the presence of God forever. Do you have that hope? Is that what spurs you on day by day? It should. It will if you keep looking. It's a place where all sin has been paid for in full. It's a place where God's people and nor anyone else will ever again defile the name of the living God. No more sin. Don't you long for a place where there's no more sin? Keep looking, it's coming. It's assured, it's promised, it's certain. That's the hope God gives Ezekiel. It's the hope God gave Paul. It's the hope God holds out for you. Those who were guilty of sin and defilement have been consumed by God's anger, verse 8. You do remember that's the alternative, don't you? That's the alternative. But you can be, ser- you can be safe and you can be saved. This is a place of supreme holiness. And of course the writer to the Hebrews, principally in chapters 8 to 10 of Hebrews, reminds us that all of this Old Testament imagery is just a type and a shadow of the reality to come which is all to find its fulfilment in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of it. And those types and shadows of the Old Testament law are pictured here in this vision. And Christ is the fulfilment of it all. And they're just types and shadows of that which he would do. The reality in all of this is Christ. Those offerings depicted in the second half of chapter 43 are all pointing to the work of Christ as the final offering for all sin. The symbol is this temple, a place of perpetual sacrifice so that all sins are being atoned for forever. But it's only a picture. The reality is Christ's once for all sacrifice so that all sins are atoned for forever. Do you know that he's done that for you? All that we have now in Christ, all that we will yet have in Christ, with our eternal inheritance, is symbolised in Ezekiel's temple vision, and fulfilled not in anything physical, but in Christ and in his church, and when he returns. So we read in Hebrews, don't we, about the priests ministering daily, chapter 10, 
offering repeatedly the same sacrifices over and over and over again because those sacrifices can't actually achieve anything. But we have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. And here in this temple is the holiness depicted. And it's through Christ that we have this new and living way and this access into the Father, the great high priest over the whole household of God. Let's draw near with a true heart in full assurance and faith, he says. Because Christ has secured all of this. Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, because he who promised is faithful. And the writer of Hebrews reminds us that all of this imagery that appears so real is just symbolic of far greater spiritual realities and truths. You haven't come to the mountain that you can touch. It's not a, it's not a real high mountain in Ezekiel's vision. It's not a real temple that you can go and touch those ten-foot-thick walls. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. Do you know you'll be there? Do you? Because it's coming. Are you ready? Are you looking? Is it keeping you? And the temple, of course, signifies the church in reality. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, you're fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, that's you, the whole building being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That's you. In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That's you. Coming to him, says Peter, as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, of course, as Christian people, in many ways, we have the reality of these promises right now, don't we? We do. Right now, we, as God's people, are the temple of the living God. We have his promise that he's right here with us. Whenever we gather in his name, he presences himself amongst his people. So in many ways, we have the fulfillment of that vision of Ezekiel right now. But the day is coming when we'll experience these truths even more fully. And in the complete absence of sin. And in the perfect holiness and in the perfect presence of God forever. Don't you long for that day? Doesn't that fire you up and keep you walking with Christ? The glory of God in the presence of his people dwelling with him forever in perfect fellowship. What a day. And of course they are the things pictured in the revelation as God's word is brought to a close. And here it is in another form as it starts to bring to a close the book of Ezekiel. 
The question is, where do you stand in all of this? When your earthly pilgrimage is over, what is your hope for eternity? Will you be there? If you'll turn from your sin, trusting in Christ as Saviour and Lord, you too will have all the assurance and hope of the prophets and the apostles. There is waiting for you in Christ a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory.